0: Exodus chapter 20, simply verse 13. This is God's holy word. Hear it. You shall not murder. Amen. Thus far, God's holy and inerrant and inspired word to us tonight. Would you pray with me, friends? Lord, this is your word, and we need it. Lord Jesus, you have said, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from your mouth. And so we come to you for food for our souls tonight. Feed us. You have fed us once already this day, and we come yet again to feast again. You are good to us with your bounty. So grant us your Holy Spirit's ministry, his illumination, as we study this, your holy word tonight. We ask it for Jesus' sake. Amen. You shall not murder. It's just two words in Hebrew, lo ratzach. This is another one of those commandments where at first blush, you might be tempted to think, you know, I've, I've kept this one. I haven't murdered anybody. I'm pretty good on that score. Now, those other commandments related to lying or coveting or idolatry, there I've been a little fuzzy, a little inconsistent. But murder and killing people, pretty good and clear on that one. Well, once again, this is one of those commandments where there's more than meets the eye, and we'll talk about that in a moment. But you might think that even with all the godlessness and sin-glutted disposition of our culture, you might think that this is the one commandment that enjoys widespread support. People object to the first commandment, no other gods but the God of the Bible. Well, that's not very tolerant in a pluralistic society. People might object to the fourth commandment. That seems overly restrictive. Seventh commandment, well, everyone needs to let loose with a little sexual sin now and again. That's a bit much, don't you think? But the sixth commandment, that we can get behind, putting ourselves in the position of the secular culture. That we can get behind. Practically every culture has laws against homicide. Even in our sinful society, we have laws against murder and manslaughter. So this command surely has widespread appeal, yes? Oh, if only, our culture has been rightly called a culture of death, and what was once unthinkable has been tacitly, passively approved and facilitated for generations, and even worse in the past decade. In some cases, it has been positively endorsed, a cause for celebration. Shout your abortion is a mantra of recent years. No need to be embarrassed for what you did. It's your right. There's no shame. Tout it. Trumpet it. Celebrate your freedom. Or, horrifically, we've seen the bodies of slain people, photographs or video, proudly posted on social media with groups cheering either on the video itself or in that cesspool of the internet known as the comments section. Another pastor friend reminded me of this. You might remember a few years ago, around 2017 or so, the comments of a man named Dr. Peter Singer were unearthed and given renewed attention, and it scandalized all kinds of people, and rightly so. The sad thing is that Dr. Singer had been publishing and promoting these views since 1999, really since 1975, maybe earlier. What he thought about human life and ethics was not new, but thanks to a New York Times article, that spotlight had been thrown onto his views in about 2017. But since 1999, Dr. Singer has been the IRA W. Decamp, professor of bioethics in the University Center for Human Values at Princeton University. He is on the record for saying this, quote: "I do not see any argument in the claim that merely being a member of the species Homo sapiens gives you moral worth and dignity, whereas being a member of the species." pan troglodytes, that is chimpanzees, does not give you worth and dignity. He argues that we ought to abandon the idea of the equal value of all humans, replacing that with a more graded view in which moral status depends on some aspect of cognitive ability. If one has the cognitive capacity scoring highly enough on a graded scale, then one may be recognized as equally morally valid and valuable as a human being, close quote. According to this professor of bioethics at Princeton University, and I'm quoting another man's summary of what Peter Singer said when pressed, when he was pressed on the implications of his views. Here's how another man summarized it. Those who are cognitively impaired, whether as a result of congenital condition, a degenerative disease, or as a result of accident or injury, ought not to be regarded as intrinsically, equally valuable human beings, along with the rest of society. An unborn child, similarly, does not meet Professor Singer's criteria for human equal validity and moral dignity, which, of course, means that such people without any moral consequence or inference of guilt can be managed, used, controlled, even killed and discarded. Close quote. The thing about Dr. Singer is the man is horrifically consistent in his ideology, if not in his actions. Singer's mother has Alzheimer's, and he has paid for her ongoing care. And when he's asked about his inconsistency of that, he admits that were he, were he solely responsible for her care and not able to pay others to do it for him, he said, quote, she might not be alive today, close quote. Ideas have consequences, and it is horrifying to contemplate. Now I mention this not so much to bash Dr. Singer's views but to point out that at least in living memory, there was a time when such views would not be countenanced in decent society, much less enshrined via an endowed professorship at one of the world's leading research universities. But there he has been for well over a quarter century. In recent years, the ghastly Supreme Court decision Roe v. Wade has been overturned, praise God, rightly so. But in a nation of approximately 700,000 abortions per year on average, of approximately 64 million abortions since 1973, of 26,000 homicides per year, about 1 million homicides over the last 50 years, it's fair to say that we have got a long way to go before we become a culture that treasures and values life, a long way indeed. We are a culture that despises life and celebrates death and dehumanization. And so, as one man said, Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, you shall not murder, speaks with God's voice, speaks into our dehumanizing day with a word of gospel hope. Indeed, more than just a prohibition, against slaughtering fellow image bearers of God. This sixth commandment teaches positive duties for us as God's people. We must be about the business, brothers and sisters, of creating a culture, a posture that cherishes, stewards, protects, and fosters life. That's part of what our Westminster Larger Catechism helps us understand. Not just that we would eschew wickedness and death, but we would actually labor for and cultivate a culture of life. And before we think about our catechism, it's worth doing a little bit of clarifying. Many of you may have grown up with the King James Version's rendering of this command, Thou shalt not kill. It's a little misleading. The better translation, I think, which you'll find in the English standard or the New King James or the New American standard, is you shall not murder And some of your Bible translations may offer a footnote which says that the Hebrew word ratzach, translated murder, means not just taking someone's life with malice aforethought, but it also covers the connotation of causing human death through carelessness or negligence. Deuteronomy chapter four, verse 42, expands further on this, for example. But the point is that it says murder or it might include unintentional killing One scholar suggested that we might translate it as you shall not kill unlawfully, suggesting that there are such things as lawful killings. Now this is made clear from Scripture, where Exodus and Deuteronomy have all kinds of case laws that describe cases of self-defense or the death penalty for certain kinds of sin. Death as a judicial penalty, stemming all the way back from Genesis chapter 9, sanctioned in God's holy word. We actually have a duty to defend and protect life, property, and others, as our catechism makes clear. There's also the whole conversation about the doctrine of just war, as opposed to unjust war, which Christians have held to since at least the time of Augustine, probably earlier. But we know from the mouth of the Lord Jesus himself in the New Testament that this command covers more than merely taking another man's mortal life. Matthew 5, verse 22, which we read from a few minutes ago, Jesus expounds on the sixth commandment. He says this, anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Anyone who insults his brother will be liable to the council and whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Likewise, the apostle John, 1 John three fifteen, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. As many a pastor has said, both the root and the fruit are in view here. The root, malicious, simmering, bubbling, percolating hatred, as well as the fruit, the unlawful killing of another human, both are forbidden. The territory covered by the sixth commandment includes not only our actions, but also the meditations of our hearts. And this is why, to my mind, the exposition of the larger catechism, Westminster Larger Catechism, is so helpful. You see, it's largely following that New Testament model, and it shows us that the territory covered by the Sixth Commandment is far more expansive than what we might have first imagined. Let me read to you just two two of the catechism questions on this subject. And listen along, I'll read slowly, and I wonder if this just doesn't pierce your conscience as you hear these things. Here's question 135. What are the duties required in the sixth commandment? The duties required in the sixth commandment are all careful studies and lawful endeavors to preserve the life of others, of ourselves and others, by resisting all thoughts and purposes, subduing all passions and avoiding all occasions, temptations and practices which tend to the unjust taking away the life of any by just defense thereof against violence, patient bearing of the hand of God, quietness of mind, cheerfulness of spirit, a sober use of meat, drink, and medicine, sleep, labor, and recreations, by charitable thoughts, love, compassion, meekness, gentleness, kindness, peaceable, Mild and courteous speech and behavior, forbearance, readiness to be reconciled, patient bearing and forgiving of injuries, and requiting good for evil, comforting and succoring the distressed, and protecting and defending the innocent. Those are some of the duties required in the sixth commandment. Now how about 136? What are the sins forbidden in the sixth commandment? The sins forbidden in the sixth commandment are all taking away the life of ourselves or of others, except cases of public justice, lawful war, or necessary defense. The neglecting or withdrawing the lawful and necessary means of preserving of life, sinful anger, hatred, envy, desire of revenge, all excessive passions, distractive cares, immoderate use of meat, drink, labor, and recreations, provoking words, oppression, quarreling, striking, wounding, and whatsoever else tends to the destruction of the life of any. That's a lot to think about. That's a lot to take in. As we've mentioned before, the law of God is both spiritual and comprehensive, Each of the Ten Commandments is a summary for a whole swath of godly attitudes and actions that we should be cultivating. I wonder if many of us might have business to do before the throne of God this week as we think about this command and its implications. But whatever your particular case might be, whatever your sin struggles, whatever your particular vices and temptations, the command before us is fundamentally about glorifying God, valuing life. And cultivating a lifestyle that is greatly concerned with the good and welfare of ourselves, our family, and our neighbor. A posture that is remarkably strange and radical in our self-centered age. And so, in the time that we have remaining tonight, I want to think about three principles that we can derive from this command. There's a number of commentaries that I read and studied in looking at this text that also took this approach, and so I thought we would do likewise tonight. So three simple principles. The sanctity of life, and then what we might call, if I can invent a word, the unsanctity of life. But then thirdly and finally, the Lord of life. The sanctity of life, the unsanctity of life, and the Lord of life. So first of all, let's think about the sanctity of life. The Sixth Commandment underscores the fundamental sanctity of life. That is life. Human life is essentially valuable. It is inherent with dignity. God-imbued, God-endowed dignity. This This is apparent from the very first pages of Scripture. Genesis 1, verse 27. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And so while it once may have been obvious and did not need saying, in these days it does. In a stark departure from the posture and practice of our culture, which treats life as an expendable, inconvenient, and discardable thing. The word of God, and therefore the people of God, and the church of Christ affirm that all people are created equal in dignity and inherent Inherently worthy because we are image bearers of Almighty God. Irrespective of one's potential. Regardless of one's physical or cognitive abilities or financial status or social standing or physical impairments or age or illness or strength or infirmity. The ability to contribute to society. Capacity for independent function or anything else. Irrespective of any of that, mankind... Male and female, man, woman, or child stands inherently valuable, inherently worthy of care because they are created in the image of God. From the vulnerable and helpless child in utero, to the fragile newborn, to the aged and infirmed elderly citizen, they are all formed and fashioned in the image of their maker. And we mentioned Genesis 9 a few minutes ago, thinking about God's instruction to Noah regarding capital punishment. Genesis 9, verses 5 and 6, remember how God grounds this command? Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. You see, murder is sin because it is an assault on the inherent dignity of a man or woman made in the image of Almighty God. And that's what the sixth commandment helps us understand. And the New Testament helps deepen and broaden that understanding. And we noted earlier Jesus' words, Matthew 5.22, that malicious speech, you fool, he said. Now, raka is the word that's used there in New Testament. It's an Aramaic-rooted term of derision or insult. It means fool or numbskull, good for nothing. Literally, it means empty head. And really, it carries the same sense of despising derision as, you idiot. Jesus says, saying such an utterance to his fellow man, a man using such an utterance to his fellow man is in danger of the hell of fire. The kind of disdain and derision that stands behind such an insult. James, the brother of Jesus, makes a similar point in James three, verses nine and 10. He says, the tongue is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. It's a rebuke James gives us to our anger and to our abiding resentment, the resentment that we harbor. You may not have stabbed someone in the flesh with a knife, but how often do we speak to each other or about one another with derisive, insulting speech that really comes from a malice, a disdain, a hateful spite. None other than the Lord Jesus is the one who said such hateful speech is tantamount to murder and that such vile malice on our tongues is a sin that is on the trajectory toward physical murder. If I can put it this way, our abusive words toward another person is an assault on a fellow image-bearer of God. And the fact that I didn't rain down deadly blows of physical violence upon that person, but merely spoke of him hatefully and spitefully and thought in my heart that, you know, I wouldn't be terribly sorry to hear the news of his sudden demise. Such thoughts and words stand in violation of the sixth commandment. John Calvin once wrote this, our neighbors bear the image of God. To use him, abuse him, or misuse him is to do violence to the person of God who images himself, capital H, himself in every human soul, close quote. The Lord God has placed, he has stamped his image upon men and women and boys and girls so that in all of our thoughts and musings as well as our words and actions, We ought to recognize and respect and reinforce the inherent dignity, value, and worthiness of life, human life, as many have said, valuing human life from womb to tomb and everywhere in between. So that's the first thing that this commandment teaches us, the sanctity of life. But then secondly, the unsanctity of life. The unsanctity of life. The sanctity of life is what we want, though it is not the reality. That reality is not recognized or respected as it ought to be. We know this all too well, and we see it far too often. Life is not regarded as sacred. It is not protected. It is not esteemed as it ought to be in our world. Why? Sin. As I tell my children all the time, sin ruins everything. Sin poisons everything. I rather appreciate the comments by one pastor here. He said this, Satan lied to our first parents, saying, you will not surely die. And when our first parents took the fruit and ate, they broke the sixth commandment, among others, willfully taking actions that would bring death to themselves and to all human beings descended from them. Romans 5, verse 12, sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin and so death spread to all men because all sinned, close quote. Do you ever think about that? you think of Adam's pride and his arrogance, his disbelieving God, his flagrant disobedience of simply taking the fruit when God told him not to? Do you ever think of that violation as a violation of the Sixth Commandment? The Sixth Commandment says that we ought, we ought to take every lawful action to preserve our own life and the life of others. Adam did everything to spread death in himself and in all the human race. Adam's sin brought death upon us all and from him. And so, as multiple commentators have pointed out, it's hardly a surprise when the next recorded sin in Scripture is what? Murder. The first sin was the defying of God's command, eating of the fruit. And the second sin, at least that which is recorded in the pages of Holy Scripture, is murder, fratricide. The first two newborn children of all history, according to Scripture brought into this world. Brothers, those boys, once perhaps playing in the streams and fields in ancient Mesopotamia, all grown up. And Cain murders his brother Abel, Genesis four, verse eight. How quickly sin had penetrated, warped and depraved the human heart. That in the very first generation, we've gone from mere disobedience, merely not listening to God, and merely eating the fruit, lies, and deception. And in one generation, we've gone to murder of one's own brother. Thus has it ever been. Life is treated with great unsanctity. We don't regard it as inherently valuable. The evidence is all around us. Genesis 6, 5, the Lord saw that every intention of the thoughts of man's heart was only evil continually. And so with apologies to Jiminy Cricket, we cannot allow our conscience to be our guide because sin has poisoned it. It is depraved and untrustworthy. Sinners, as Paul says in Romans one, suppress that which is plain truth. We suppress it in unrighteousness. And so God gives his law here at Sinai commands inscribed in stone and recorded for us here in scripture to inform our sin-poisoned, sin-darkened, truth-suppressing minds and consciences. We need this law as a guide to our living, both individually, as a church, as a human society. We need it, but we have largely rejected it. Life has inherent dignity. Life is worthy of protection. But sin enters in and we take life instead of protect it. And so the sixth commandment is given because of our depravity. And still our depravity runs rampant. How desperately we need help and rescue. We see it all around us. In the most egregious expressions of murder, the treating of life as expendable, as a commodity that may have its usefulness but is easily discarded, that child is unwanted. Abort. That child has some degenerative disease or Down syndrome and he might live an unpleasant or inconvenient life. Why not terminate the pregnancy? That elderly person is getting frail, suffering with various ailments, inconvenient she is and costly to care for. Why not just euthanize the person? Life is expendable. People are disposable. And so we, as a society, snuff out life rather than inconvenience ourselves with it. Now admittedly, often very challenging, but we would rather snuff out life than inconvenience ourselves with responsibilities of care and compassion for people of every age in all kinds of circumstances. We think, well, okay, yes, but, but my family has never aborted a child. I've never counseled someone to do that. I've certainly never shot anyone. I've never sent my elderly grandmother to be euthanized. I'm doing well. Ah, but the scripture exposes our hearts, doesn't it? Our thoughts and our attitudes, this sinister wickedness lurking in our minds and our souls are laid bare, exposed. Words of harsh, biting sentiment, hateful thoughts, derisive and spiteful, like venom on our lips and on our tongues. We find ourselves in violation of the sixth command, if not indeed in action, certainly in thought. How desperately, how desperately we need help and rescue. Which brings us to the third great principle. The sanctity of life, the unsanctity of life, but then the Lord of life. Is there any hope for a life disdaining people? Sinners like you and me who stand under condemnation for breaking the sixth commandment? Remember 1 John 3.15 from earlier? Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer and does not have eternal life abiding in him. Every sixth commandment violator stands under the righteous condemnation of a holy God. Each of us hell-bound, deserving of wrath. Is there any hope? Is there any hope for the man who in a fit of unrestrained rage took life and can never undo what he's done? For the young mother, frightened, exploited, manipulated perhaps, who terminated the pregnancy. For the man who facilitated it. For the family member who now regrets what he authorized to do to his grandfather. How about for those of us with biting tongues, cultivating resentment, nursing unending grudges of malice toward our neighbor, harboring murder in our hearts? Is there any hope? Yes, there is. Praise God, yes, there is. There is hope to be found in the Lord of life himself, Jesus Christ. In a life-despising world, a world glutted on sin, a world in love with its own sin, a world hell-bent on death, in a world that has fallen prey to death because of Adam's sin, which invited death into the cosmos and cursed us all with death, such that the human race in its sin has become a death-loving society. Into such a world entered the Lord of life. John chapter 1 tells us, in him was life. And life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. To all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of the blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Into a world glutted on the darkness of death, came the Savior to give the new birth. And what does birth connote but life? Into a society of death he came, light and life to all he brings, risen with healing in his wings. Christ came to create a church, a people of the new birth, a people dedicated to treasuring, cultivating, stewarding, defending, and promoting life. Remember the Lord's words, his concluding words at the end of Deuteronomy, chapter 30? I call heaven and earth to witness against you today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and curse. Therefore, choose life, that you and your offspring may live, loving the Lord your God, obeying his voice, holding fast to him, for he is your life and length of days. Life. Life is the tone and the tenor of the redeemed heart. Psalm 118, verse 17. It's the Savior speaking here, but it's representative of all his children. I shall not die, but I shall live and recount the deeds of the Lord. Isn't it a glorious gospel irony that the Lord of life came into a world of death and that in his death, his death, we citizens of that culture of death might have life and hope. In the death of his son, God has made a way for sixth commandment breakers to find life and cleansing and pardon and healing and forgiveness in the wicked, most heinous sin that has ever been committed, the slaying of the prince of life, the murder of Christ Jesus. His death-bound people are given life Murderous men and women we are. And the one who never broke the sixth commandment has borne the penalty for all of us who have broken it time and again. The bloodthirsty crowd and the murderous, bloodlusting religious leaders conspiring to destroy him and Pilate washing his hands of it, facilitating this murderous injustice. And before Christ breathes his last and gives up his spirit, remember what he says, Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. As one man said, there is mercy for murderers at the foot of the cross. There is pardon for you in Jesus Christ. And so to all of you Sixth Commandment breakers, all of you haters, spiteful scorners, those of you who are burdened by the actions of your past, those horrendous actions that you wish you could undo and which unrelentingly haunt your conscience, there is pardon and cleansing and hope and new life for you only to be found in Jesus Christ, the once dead and now risen and reigning Lord of glory. Won't you come again? Or maybe perhaps for the first time to Christ Jesus. Ask for mercy, confess the wickedness of your heart, and seek the cleansing that only he can give. If you have some sin in your life with which you've been struggling or some actions in your past that have burdened you and you need someone to talk about it or talk with it, with you, the elders are here for you. Please come seek us out. We would love to pray with you, offer whatever godly counsel we can, but ultimately we're going to point you to Jesus Christ in the end because only in him, only in him will you find at his mercy seat, only in him will you find that cleansing and pardon that your soul needs, that cleansing and burden relief from your conscience that you need. There at his mercy seat, you'll find him saying, Father, forgive them. And then, might it be, brothers and sisters, that the church of the Lord Jesus Christ might be the greatest earthly force for life that this world has ever known. Might we be a people championing, defending, cultivating, promoting, protecting, and cherishing life, and all for the glory of Christ, he who is the risen Lord of life. Praise God for the sixth commandment. Would you pray with me, please? Truly, Lord, we ask again that the words of my mouth and the meditation of all our hearts would be acceptable in your sight because you are our rock and our redeemer. Seal the truth of these, your holy words, upon our hearts this night for our everlasting good and your everlasting glory. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.